Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A safe space for self-exploration, questioning the status quo, and finding out who the fuck you are. Hey gang, thanks for joining us for the latest episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Our guest today is Carolyn Giovanello, and Carolyn is a certified professional coactive coach, or a CPCC for short, and we'll be sharing her story about why she chose this type of work, how she helps her clients evolve, and some ideas about what you can do to keep yourself on track amidst these trying times. Carolyn's enthusiasm is unparalleled, and when we met, I realized there might actually be someone who can give me a run for my money when it comes to how much one person can talk. But before we go down that rabbit hole, Carolyn, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Thank you for that introduction, Nikki. I'm very glad to be here today. I am indeed a CPCC and a PCC, which is all just very fancy language for someone who went through a coaching program and got certified in it. And it is the great love of my life next to traveling and my two small children. I also dabble in leadership development and feel really strongly that this is probably the worst best time to shine as a mental and emotional health specialist. So I'm pretty excited about COVID, but also terrified of COVID. So I think that this is coming out at a really opportune time. Yeah, I would say so. Well, that I think just gives us a good segue into the first question, which is at what point did you decide that becoming a professional coach was the right choice for you? Everyone should know their origin story for how they're on their path. Mine kind of came about um, in a sort of background, backwards way that I was speaking up in a meeting that I probably was not qualified and certainly didn't have the um, title to be speaking in. And I was finding myself really frustrated with the disconnect. And so I opened my mouth and tried to bring people together by sharing observations, you know, what I had heard, making sure that I could repeat that so that people would feel really connected to what the message was and hopefully get everyone to a solution. Um, I was promptly asked to leave the meeting. And uh, my boss at the time, who was one of the senior leaders, he came um, to me later and asked me, you know, Carlin, have you ever thought about being a coach? And, you know, completely seriously, I said to him, you know, I'm very athletic. I just don't think I could ever teach someone how to do a sport. And he looked at me like, oh, girl, you are so crazy. Um, And then after he stopped uh, laughing, he told me that he thought that executive coaching or business level coaching was something that I should sincerely consider because I had a way of being able to talk about really tough things without putting anyone into a fight or flight sort of defensive uh, position. And in doing so, I'm able to make connections in sort of the hardest arenas. And pretty promptly after that, I enrolled myself in a coaching program and started my own company. You know, when you find the right fit, it, it's it's as easy as everybody says it is. It's supposed to be that way. And so that's been about three and a half years now. That's awesome. I actually didn't know that you'd been doing it that long. And I think it's a really cool origin story, particularly the fact that you didn't know what he meant at the time. I just find that to be amazing. But it sort of feels like it, it tracks. What would you say your role as a professional coach, how that fundamentally differs? from something like a therapist's role, if we exclude the medical prerequisites that are kind of the obvious answer to that question? Yeah, and that's a really good question because a lot of people confuse therapy and coaching. And my basic way of explaining it is therapy deals with what happened yesterday all the way back to your birth. And coaching focuses on this moment and everything going forward in the future. So if you are hung up on something, you know, that happened 
you know, a year ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, a good coach is going to say, I want to recommend a therapist for you because that's something that, you know, is basically affecting your progress of moving forward, which is why I would want to coach you. Um, In the same vein, if a person is with a therapist and is just trying to get, you know, activated to living their best potential and, and making headway in things that they really haven't been able to for, you know, a year from now, five years from now, 15 years from now, a good therapist would say, I want to recommend for you a coach because there are, you know, different techniques and different tools that both use, but really a coach should never try to be a therapist and a therapist, you know, should probably not try to be a coach. Yeah, that's a good explanation. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, knowing what you do now, if you had ever considered becoming a therapist and based on how you just explained it, I'm curious if the reason you chose coach over therapist is because it is forward looking as opposed to more of a retrospective on your life. I think that coaching serves me because I am a high performer and worked really well with high performers. In fact, I call myself a performance coach and consultant. I like people that have drive. I have a lot of focus. I want to work with people that have focus. So it wasn't so much, you know, that I didn't want to be a therapist. I actually want to go get my PhD in psychology or sociology. You know, obviously I have to pin one of those down. But I love trying to figure out how to motivate and to encourage and empower people to take ownership over their lives. I think it's something that we have not been trained that well to learn to do. And in doing so, we've given over to you know, our government, to our partners, to our children, to our best friends, the authority to manage ourselves. And I think it's really important that people get that ownership back and take control of the choices that they make because that's what brings fulfillment. And at the end of the day, I'm not talking about people being thrilled or you know beyond happy or joyous. I'm talking about people having real fulfillment in their life and being rooted to the fact that their life is of their designation, not someone else's. It encapsulates a lot of what I know about your personality and how passionate you are about helping people and also your own personal growth. So I think it's a really cool way that you're passion and your ability to focus and your intense drive dovetails with what your actual work life was able to become. I think that it also really resonates with me because of how I have started working for myself in some capacity with this podcast is like, you know, you said something earlier about, you know, when it just fits, it sort of works and you start to move towards that. And so you sort of start to think about how other ideas that you've had historically might play into that, or if it really aligns with what your overall vision for your life was. And sometimes those things fit together. Other times they sort of become an amalgamation of a lot of things or or you just completely get on a different track, but you just know a little bit more about yourself going through that process. So I really appreciate that the type of work that you do is to help people get to that point as well. And it's cool because you've actually done those things for yourself. So it's like you're, you're practicing what you preach. Yeah, I think that's an important concept uh, that I do think a lot of health professionals, mental health, emotional health professionals kind of stumble around themselves as if you're not willing to do the work. I don't know. I I sort of have a a little hitch to my giddy up. Are you the best person to be trying to work with other people and doing that for themselves? Yeah. Well, I I also am curious um, from something you just said sparked the question, well, do you consider yourself 
um, some sort of mental health professional or an emotional health professional or a little bit of both? Because to me, as a performance coach, I would say it has to be both. Yeah, I would say that I'm both. You know, I've often leaned on trying to explain coaching, which has kind of become this new fad word and everybody is a coach these days. And, you know, I really believe when I've talked to people that have labeled themselves coaches and have no formal training, you know, that that's um, very misguided for clients that are coming to them because, again, there's technique that you need to learn. There is a real deep sense of how to work with people on a very, very deep and emotional level. And so emotion to me, you know, especially working within leadership, it is the number one piece that I want awareness around someone's own emotional state, own emotional security, own psychological safety, um, self-awareness. And in doing so, I think there is a real gravitational pull towards, you know, finding success and finding fulfillment and finding happiness. And it also relies on mental health because one of the things that we take an oath as coaches is that if a person does not have strong mental health, our job is to recommend some person um, in the medical uh, uh, triage that can work with them. You know, when we start talking to people at a deeper level, a lot of things come up, both positive and negative. And in doing so, you want to be very respectful that you don't know how another person is going to respond. You don't know what it's going to trigger inside of them. And so if it's something that is beyond your capacity, it is your role to make sure that this person is safe, whether emotionally or mentally or physically. And when you take an oath to be a coach or to be a therapist or to work in any of these um, professions, the safety and the health of your clients is your number one priority. So I do caution people that claim to be any of these things and haven't gone through the rigorous training that it involves to really have deep understanding and um, a deep acceptance for the work that we're doing, how powerful that is. You mentioned going through rigorous training as a coach. So can you walk me through that a little bit, what your process actually looked like to, to become certified and have the role that you have and build your company? You know, I want to give a shout out to the school that I was certified through, which is the Coactive um, Training Institute. And you first will go through five courses and each course is probably 24 to 30 hours in length, which you usually do in a three-day block. So there's five of those. And you end up with, you know, 100 plus hours of actual um, schooling, being with master coaches, being in a group. We had a cohort that were a phenomenal group of coaches. And you really work and suffer as a group because the point is to pull off the band-aid to be a really great coach you have to go outside of the norm and i think that that is unique for a lot of different coaches for me it's about making people feel uncomfortable on purpose i know what comfortable feels like and i want you to try on uncomfortable so that you can see where there's room for growth where you can maneuver yourself um, and so you have to suffer through that with your cohort and it's an amazing, awful, wonderful experience. And once you have completed all the 
coursework, then you are able to sign up for certification, which is a very intensive six-month program where you have to take um, additional coursework with, again, a master coach. You have a pod that you go through with. You have to do individual trainings. You have to get five paying clients. You need to um, accumulate 100 coaching hours, which maybe is fine for a person where that's their only job. I had another full-time job. I was pregnant. I had a three-year-old. Um, so again, being a high performer, it was kind of a place where I was really thriving, but it was also changing me fundamentally going through this program. If you ask anybody that I've been friends with longer than, you know, five years, which is a great deal of people that I know, they're pretty surprised at how my own evolution has come about in the last five years because of coaching. And I think that says a lot about the art of it itself is that it, it's, hugely transformational for both the client and the coach. And so to graduate, to do your 100 hours, to take your written, to take your verbal exam, and then to get your certification, it really feels like an accomplishment. And I definitely celebrated. And then I definitely, um, you know, started campaigning myself to get more clients because I felt super confident that I knew I was going to make impact. And I was just ready and waiting for, for people that were ready for that too. I had really no clue how much went into something like being certified to become a performance coach of that sort. Obviously, you know, there's coursework, but the way you described your own transformation within that process, like what do you, what was the biggest thing for you that came out of it? Just going through the act, not your actual job now and the people that you've worked with, but going through that process of the certification and how much energy you had to put into it. You know, I have always been labeled by other people as an extrovert, but I'd probably consider myself an extroverted introvert. And the extroversion was sort of the show. You know, I come from a family of musicians and, you know, the show always must go on. And what I learned very early on in the coaching program that was so profound to me was how powerful silence can be. And by offering silence, to your clients, to your partner, to your kid, to explain themselves, to have time to think about an answer. It slows both yourself and the other person down so much that you can actually have time to really deepen a conversation and really choose the words and the thought process that you want to share out loud. And for me, who was always running at 150%, you know, was kind of half listening to every person that I spoke to was, you know, doing three or four jobs at once. What this taught me is that if you're very focused in a specific amount of time on one thing and can allow there to be what I called space for space. And that absolutely changed who I am down to my core where now I have the opportunity to allow myself space to think about things, for my clients to think about things, so that it feels true whenever there is a response versus something more automatic that's just firefighting. Yeah, that's a really great explanation of how it has impacted you. And I really loved that comment that you made about creating space for space. Just the ability to relate to people, which you do, People immediately assume that 
you know, your whole vibe is that you're, you're out there and you're completely out there and you're giving everything that you have. So I, I relate to that introverted extrovert kind of concept, but then also the fact that being so extroverted and emotionally available to people in certain ways did make it really hard for me to focus on what other people would be saying with the level of attention that it probably deserved at certain times. It actually really makes me recall this one conversation I had with my roommate, Meg, in college. It was our senior year, and this isn't profound or anything, but it was just kind of a funny moment for me that really forced me to acknowledge I have to listen better to people. We were talking at each other, listening to what the other one was saying, but not really waiting to respond. And so we would still be able to keep track of the conversation and converse. It wasn't that we weren't paying attention, but it wasn't like we were giving it all of the attention it deserved either. And so I think we just both kind of had a moment where we paused and we're like, maybe we should maybe we should give this a second and let let like one person talk and then the other person can talk and we can not have, you know, simultaneous conversations about different topics, but actually like really give to this relationship what it deserves instead of kind of trying to gloss over details. Because I think it's in those details where we actually start to really learn about each other. I mean, that's absolutely true. And I often tell people if everybody is talking, then that means no one is listening. And one of the fundamental um, concepts of coaching is active listening. It's to really hear every word, every nuance to the wording, but also be able to read a person's nonverbal cues, to be able to see the whole conversation that's taking place so that you have a great understanding of what this person is both communicating and trying to communicate to get to a level where Every time you have an interaction, it goes deep quickly. And I would say you look at the the people that I socialize with and that I work with, we all have very deep relationships because we've all made the choice to go there in terms of active listening and powerful questions and showing up for each other. And I wouldn't change that because I truly love each and every one of these people and I love engaging with them because I feel space for space. I also feel like that's a a perfect description of how I feel about the connections that I have with people too. You know, there's something very special about being able to have a meaningful conversation and get deeper in that way with people quickly because we do spend a lot of time, I think, hesitating or second guessing ourselves or worrying what somebody's going to think or say about how we feel. And when you get to a place where you're more comfortable with the fact that you just are who you are and you become unapologetic about it, then you free up that space as well. Like you're giving somebody else an opportunity to see you as yourself. And then those deeper questions, like you said, those just sort of come inherently. But if it's this surface level conversation that doesn't really have any meaning to me, I just don't know that I really am going to attempt to drive a relationship further with somebody. And I feel like you kind of know almost instantly if somebody's going to open up to you, even if they're not opening up to you in that moment. And I imagine as a coach, you probably have people walk in your door who are pretty closed off and don't necessarily like know how to start the conversations, but they're there, they're seeing you, they obviously want something to come of it. I don't know that this is from coaching specifically because now everything has blended into just being me, but almost the harder it is to have an immediate with a relationship with a person is as hard as I'm going to push 
to really show them active listening, to really give them the attention that in my mind, I'm assuming they don't normally get. And that's why they have the discussion points that they do or behave in the way that they do, because they're not used to being seen properly. They're not used to being heard properly. And the first time that you really listen to a person and give them your full attention and they can feel that, then you follow up with a very powerful, deep question that doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be, you know, something crazy. It's just, how has that impacted you? Who are you now? What else? That person's going to look at you, blink once, and when they open their eyes again, they're going to see you and themselves in a completely different light. It might not happen immediately, but it definitely does happen. And suddenly they're turned on, they're switched on to the fact that they haven't had somebody really pay attention to them. And that's really heartbreaking because our society sort of propagates to just go quickly and make as many friends and, you know, get, 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 get. But what if we changed our perspective to really, instead of get, it was to deepen. It was to just let people know I'm present, regardless of where you can be, I'm present, I'm here for you. And however you want to show up, I've got space and security for that. Especially with the time that we're in right now, where we are required to practice social distancing. And you think about how much people are starting to notice the criticality of that human connection. It's a little ironic because prior to this, people are so buried in their phones and they don't want to pay attention to each other. And they're just, you know, laser focused on something that doesn't require them to actually really interact with people and get to that level. But now that you sort of can't, because you're not having those in-person interactions, people are freaking out about it, which is a really interesting turn of events to me. I think that we're sort of being told as a society now to reevaluate how we think about our human relationships because we've started to kind of cast aside this need for each other in lieu of, you know, the internet and social media in a way that is contained within a screen instead of really evolving to pay attention to each other. I remember one time when I was starting therapy again that uh, in Seattle with my new therapist that she said to me how I, I hadn't felt seen based on what I was saying. And I remember sort of, I mean, maybe not visibly rolling my eyes, but I think I just kind of internally scoffed and was like, whatever that means, you know. Over the course of the last year and a half, my perspective on that has completely changed. I legitimately didn't know that, that I needed that. I didn't know that I was missing something because I never had somebody name it to me. And I also didn't really buy into that concept. It really applies in all aspects of our life and whether it's uh, performance coaching or anything, you do have to be willing to say, you know what, maybe I was wrong or my perspective on this has changed and I'm opening up and I'm widening, widening my view of the world so I can become the best version of me. And I love that you have the awareness of how important it is for you to build those deep connections with your clients because it is not an easy thing to open up even if it's not about your past, but about where you want to go, because much of our fear lies in, uh, for me, especially like, I mean, it lies in rejection and all that's forward looking, you know, I mean, it, it may be, it, it may have arisen from the past, but it's the reason I will prohibit myself from doing things moving forward. And so I think you hold a really valuable role in these people's lives that you're able to help them understand what their potential is. Do you feel that people are 
quick to adapt to your suggestions as you're going through the process of coaching them? Or do you think that it's sort of is it can be challenging or does it just really depends on the person? Oof, I'm going to have to get back to that question because I do want to throw in one thing from what you just mentioned, which is we're using being socially distant from each other when I think what we're trying to say is we need to be physically distant from each other. Because when we start to plant the seed that we should not be interacting socially, that's the exact opposite of what I believe is going to get us through as a nation, as a global unit, is to now reconnect. It's to say... I, I don't, I can't see you. I can't hug you. I can't, you know, have any kind of a relationship with you that's surface level because when we speak, I have to give you attention. I need to reach out to friends I haven't spoken to in a long time. I'm either, you know, inundated with all this extra time or I can't be talking to the same three people that live in my house all the time. So I'm going to reach out to old connections, you know, that have mattered to me. So I just want for anybody that's listening to to not socially distance themselves, but to physically distance themselves and connect socially to find something really exciting that we haven't been given the opportunity to explore, which is, like you said earlier, how much better a relationship can be when it's not trapped into something the size of a phone. I almost use the term physical distancing because I had read something about the fact that it really categorically is incorrect also, right? We're not talking about you can't engage with people. We're saying don't be around people in large volumes. But I think that when we act as if this is something that is putting a wall between us and the people in our lives, we're not, we're just going to come out worse and we're already in a bad way. And I agree with you. I've reached out to a lot of people I haven't talked to in a while with more attention. It's not that I hadn't necessarily been in contact with them, but I'm giving myself the time to actually really respond with intent and purpose and to ask more questions and to go deeper into those relationships. And I actually really feel like we're lucky that this is the time in the world that this type of event is happening because we can still remain socially connected despite physical distancing. Whereas if this had happened in the 60s or the 70s, I mean, that's not how this would have gone about, right? And you can't really imagine what that level of isolation would feel like. So you were talking about how you have to go really deep in your conversations with your clients to help them and to really understand what their goals are and where they can go from where they're starting. So when you think about that, do you have any personal rules about being a coach in terms of where you have to draw that line? And would you even consider being a coach to one of your friends? Or is that sort of a a no-no? Like you don't want one of your friends being your therapist? Um, it's a funny question because you, you remember when I was talking about getting, you have to have paying clients when you first start and boy, oh boy, do you reach out to your friends and family and say, you know, $25, I'll charge you $25. Can you please be a client? So I think one of the reasons that probably coaches, you know, can coach, I wouldn't recommend it, but can coach friends, can coach family members is that you have to, and you have to do the hard work of, kind of turning yourself off to the way that you have had a relationship with this person and coach them. And so one of the hardest people I ever had to coach was my mother. 
And she didn't get the concept, and she kept trying to pretend like I wasn't her daughter. And so she would be like, well, you don't know, but my daughter, like referring to me in the coaching session. And so I had to stop, and I said, you know, I referred to her as Lynn. And I said, you know, Lynn, I know that this is a little bit awkward, and I know that, you know, we're learning how to do this together, but I'm going to need you to open up to me as your coach so that I can help you, even if it's about – you know, how to have a better relationship with your daughter, which was me at the time that she was referencing. So it was kind of like playing solitaire against yourself or not even solitaire, you know, poker against yourself or cribbage against yourself where you've got to keep moving around the table. Um, But it does take a very elevated level of skill to be able to shut down your own triggers, you know, your own emotional triggers, your own you know, areas where normally if you're having a conversation with a person and they mention something, you'd say, oh my God, you do this every time. Or, you know, why are you always, you know, dot, dot, dot. So you're controlling your level one listening. You're controlling your saboteur, your inner critic, which is saying this person's trying to talk badly about you or they don't know themselves to actually still stay very present in your active listening so that you can follow up with really powerful questions because you want whomever the client is going to be to be speaking 80% of the time that you are coaching. So if you think about it, there is some sort of laughing track that goes behind the fact that you're asking someone to pay you to speak 80% of the time. But if you're an excellent coach, which you know I consider myself to be, I only have to ask you a few questions to get you really speaking in a deep level And when I'm listening to you and all the things that you're trying to communicate to me, it only takes, you know, being present with that person to ask a very short four to seven word powerful question. And then they'll go on and on and on again. And for somebody to be able to hear themselves work out a problem, doesn't matter if they're your friend. It doesn't matter if they're your family. doesn't matter if they're your partner to be given a gift of I sit here while you basically, you know, do math or science out loud with your brain and saying, I see that, I hear that, I think this is a great process for you. It's rewarding. It really is. I still would say I don't recommend coaching people that are close to you because it's so much harder to, you know, keep yourself really level, but you can do it and it will make you a better coach for it. Even just the way that you said having somebody speak 80% of the time because you only need to ask a few probing questions and then we sort of go off on our own. I mean, it makes me think of therapy. I, duh, obviously talk most of my therapy session and have had to tell my therapist, you know, flag me down if I'm just like, I've gone like past the finish line and you wanted to interject something there. But I do think the way you described it, sort of like that beautiful mind moment where you're talking out loud and you're saying something that honestly isn't that much of a revelation sometimes. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. But it just requires somebody asking you that question and forcing you to think about it that way to get to an answer that you probably already had, but you just didn't know it. I mean, that's coaching right there, my friend. You basically just said it. We believe as coaches that every person does have the unique answer, the unique solution within themselves. It's a matter of You know, I almost like it's when you're bowling, but you have the bumper lanes 
you know, someone knows what they have to do. They got to knock the pins down. But you as the bumper are just saying, oops, you got a little off track here. Let me remind you what your agenda was in this session. Oops, you know, you, you got really happy. Can you pause for a second and tell me what made you? Oh, boy, we're crying now. So there's a lot of emotion around that. Can you tell me? Still getting their bowling ball down to hit those pins. So at the end of the day, when they walk out of your session or, you know, they complete coaching with you and they've hit a goal. And they know it's been hard work because they're bruised. You know, they've gone back and forth off these bumpers. And at the end of the day, they did that on their own. You were just there to support them to say, you can do this. It's already within you. What's going to work? And let's really get you strong behind that concept. And people will do it and they will change their lives. And it is such a brilliant profession to be in to be witness to that. I feel very lucky for all of the experiences that I have and will continue to have. It is a beautiful process to watch people coming into their own. Yes. I particularly feel that way with my wife. We've both been going through a lot over the past year, and we've done each of our fair share of therapy independently and together. And to see her growth, to witness my own growth, to hear about my growth from my therapist even, again, it's not the same as coaching, but I think that a lot of the parallels as a client are very similar. It, to your point earlier, it's a matter of which direction you're going, kind of forward or backwards. And when you stop limiting yourself to your own misconceptions really like you do acknowledge I think pieces of yourself that have transformed and gives you more strength and more power and the ability to feel confident like for the first time in my life because of all the work I've been doing on myself I actually feel confident I've never felt confident in my entire life and you put the energy in and you realize how much you want something, you can get it. And I, and I feel that somebody in your position or a therapist position who's able to advocate for that on your behalf before you can even see it is so instrumental to getting you where you want to go. I mean, I'm going to toot the horn of a lot of professionals right now and say, I really think every single person should have a therapist and a coach. A hundred percent agree with you. A hundred percent agree with you. We do not treat mental health the way that it should be treated. We understand that it is physiological. What your if your brain is doing well, your body will do better. If your body's doing well, your brain will do better. And we tend to kind of put one or the other on the back burner in any given circumstance. And until we start to approach it more holistically as a society, it's going to remain stigmatized. And I also feel like there is, because there is a discernible difference between being a therapist and being a coach, I think more people might categorize therapy as essential and coaching as a nice to have. But, but even based on what you're saying, and this is my own ignorance speaking to that because I probably would have said that as well. I think even just in the short explanation in the time that we've had together on this call, hearing how you're approaching it is something that makes me feel more confident in that statement that yes, like we should have somebody who's helping us look forward as much as we have somebody helping us work through the things that we have allowed to impact us up until this point. Yeah, thank you for um, acknowledging that because it is really important. And I especially think right now people are panicked. People feel completely um, hijacked um, emotionally, physically, professionally. And I think that 
coaching right now to get people back on track to embracing and thriving in an unpredictable world is only going to help across the board. I really can't see in my mind's eye any way that having a person get security, get clarity, get confidence around what they already can do to be successful and to be of service. Um, I, I just really, I feel for people right now and I want them to have the support that they need to believe that this is just a moment and it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it's a trying time for sure. And I think a lot of people are lost, especially professionally. I've been unemployed a couple of times in my life. And that feeling is just like, a, especially when it's not voluntary, like a punch to the gut. And you feel really disarmed and removed from your sense of self. And so how do you regain your momentum, especially if there's going to be, you know, like a long hiatus on what's happening right now. You don't know. You don't know when certain people are going back to work. We don't know, you know, if your job has security. You know, there's a lot of things that are just so ambiguous right now. And to not have the ability to see past it is a I mean, it's common probably, but it's also a great challenge, I think, to try to get to that point where you can, as you said, recognize this as a moment in time. It is a very long moment. I'm not entirely sure how many days have blended together in this moment at this point, but <laughs> it's it's still happening. Uh, and and I think that we, we do need each other. And I think we need more people like yourself to help inspire people to regroup. And, and honestly, I think we have an opportunity to revamp ourselves and our expectations of ourselves and society's expectations of what we should be doing, because we're becoming a lot more aware of where the critical roles are in this society as far as what is essential and what is not. And guess what? The people who are working at grocery stores and delivery drivers are taking on a huge load of work with a paramount level of an importance. And I don't think people expected that the service workers who are often kind of looked down upon would end up being the ones in addition to all the medical professionals who are on the front lines day and night risking their lives would be the people who we rely on to keep society afloat for an extended period of time. I just I feel like we need to reconsider how we how we connect with people and create a more cohesive approach to kind of work and life that gives people an opportunity to fulfill their needs professionally that aren't so rigid in the way that they just have historically been. I think we need to get creative with what people can do and what they should be doing based on not only what they can do because of the circumstance, but how can we change the way we do things because of the circumstance? Well, I'm just going to give you snaps for that. That was, you know, I got goosebumps when you were talking about it, and it's it's just so true. And, you know, I do think that there's a lot of positive things that will come from this. You know, my hope is to be a voice and to be an advocate that the way that we have been operating is not serving us and that there's now becoming a huge rift between what people really do need, how we should really be treating people, um, the way that we look at you know, even just uh, blue collar workers, 
Um, and again, they are keeping this country afloat right now. And so, you know, my husband is a teacher and he is hustling right now to come up with all kinds of alternate ways to educate his students. And I am beyond impressed. I am beyond humbled. And I feel as though for these folks to be able to say, what do you need? You know, how can you embrace your power? Because you really are integral. And giving that that kind of gift, that compliment, that that structure to you've had to think on your feet so quickly, you know you can do this. Where else in your life could you really step in, take ownership and change the course of something far bigger than yourself? Your coach really came out in that moment, too, because it's like, don't restrict your ability to problem solve in a catastrophe to that moment. Build on that you know that you can do it now. So how are you going to apply that to your life moving forward? And that kind of makes me beg the question, you know, what is the common theme that you tend to tackle with your clients? Is, is there one or does it just kind of run the gamut? In the beginning, you know, when I mentioned you take any client that you can get, you take any client that you can get. And even though there's a lot of poo-pooing about, you know, oh, well, you should have a niche. And if you don't have a niche, then, you know, you're not really doing a service. I think you have to take every client to really learn what that niche is. I think if you go into any of these professions, you know, believing you already know everything, well, you don't. And especially for coaching, you know, I came in kind of believing one aspect of who I would be working with and really going after what I thought were those clients. And in the end, I took stay-at-home moms, I took lawyers, um, teachers, uh, oh my gosh, just a run of gamut of, of folks that they came to me, they were recommended to me, you know, they had reduced rates, so it was great for them, it was great for me. And in working with so many different people from, you know, the, the widest of age ranges to, you know, political beliefs to religious beliefs and just giving them witness is what led me to say, you know, I focus on performance coaching which is strictly that if you believe you can, even if 1% of you believes I can do something that I've been too scared or been held back around, I am going to do everything in my power to kind of rip the Band-Aid off for you and just say, go get it. And it doesn't have to be a specific um, profession that really feels this way. I think it's a personality. I think it's a behavior. And I think that those that feel like they deserve something bigger, something better, whatever is the adjective that really cements that for them, then it's my job to make sure that that picture becomes their reality because they believe it enough that they're going to get it. So what do you expect your clients to do in between sessions based on that statement? Oh, girl, they're going to work. You know, there's a lot of different coaches out there. I like to market myself as your best, worst friend. I'm definitely going to be there with you week in, week out. But my job, how I'm successful, is that I graduate clients, meaning they come in with an agenda, they want to do a thing, and then I get them there and we part ways until they have something else that they need some you know, strategic sort of decision making with. But for the most part, um, 
you know, I want people to work. And that's why there's usually two weeks in between each session. That's why I expect a six month commitment when I'm working with new clients, because it's a long term process. And it takes time to shift a behavior and a habit. And that is where I feel like most people come in saying, but this has never worked for me or I've never been able to do that. And, you know, it reminds me of my five-year-old that says, it's never going to happen. And from the age of five, probably from the age of two, you have been told so many stories that you have built an existence on things that aren't necessarily yours, whether those are those habits that came from somebody telling you, you know, you need to be thin, so don't eat carbohydrates. So, you know, you find yourself way later in life going, oh, well, I don't eat that because X, Y, and Z. You don't actually know why you're not eating it. You're just following someone's instruction that came so repeatedly it went down into your psyche. I want to break those habits. I want to break the remote actions that people say, I don't know why I do it. I, I, I just have always done it this way. And I want people to shift their feeling so that they shift the thought so that it shifts the action so that it shifts the behavior so that it shifts the habit and if you want to change you're gonna have to give it time and you're gonna have to work at it it is practice like any athlete you don't go out there and say i'm gonna win the gold you know, at the Olympics, having never run before, and now I'm going to step onto the track and say, well, I'm going to get, no way, you know, no way. But I thought you weren't qualified to coach a sport. I mean, see, (laughs) I've tried to take on running too, because woof, I need to do something. But um, I do really strongly feel that people come in and they think that they know everything about themselves. And then when you start to peel back the onion and say, you know, do you know where this idea originally came from? Do you actually believe in this thing? Is this actually a value for you that you support? You'll find often enough, most people will go, God, no. I, I honestly can't even believe when you break it down like that, that I've, I've been this way for as long as I have. And then there's a moment of real grief, real mourning, because a person can some somehow go to a place where they've now hated well, how they have been. You feel like you've wasted time. Yes. And energy and on something there. that's not, yeah, and something that's not for you anymore. And when you said that, it really struck me because the whole reason I started this podcast was after I had started my blog, which really, I guess that's sort of the point. The whole reason I had started the blog originally was, it was called Who the Fuck Am I? It was like, who am I? what do I believe about myself versus who am I actually? And I've spent a ton of my life battling with that because of preconceptions that were either fed to me or just environmentally the way that I was convinced that I should be or should think about things. And you're right, we do. We let those things become ingrained in ourselves in certain ways. And in other ways, they're just, we're we're predisposed to them. We don't have a choice. I mean, you have to be willing to investigate your beliefs and be willing to prove yourself wrong. Because if you're not willing to admit that you're wrong, and by wrong, I don't necessarily mean there's a right or wrong. I mean, there's a, this still is relevant for me or it's not still relevant for me or it never was relevant for me. And if you are willing to open your mind to the possibility that the way you think now isn't the way you have to think, then really there's no end in sight for what you can achieve. And when I say that out loud, it sounds like a little, you know, just kind of flaky, but it it's true. I think that we are the masters at self-limiting. And 
you do need sometimes somebody in your court to not only cheer you on, but to push you to ask yourself the right questions, which is really what you've been talking about this whole time. Like you need a resource to help you understand who are you in the grand scheme of things and what is it that you actually care about and want. So when you're working with clients, do they ever flat out disagree with you or say they won't do something that you suggest? I like to coach people that are at some point deemed uncoachable um, because I, as I learned, you know, going into this profession, I'm not afraid to tell a person regardless of their title or of their age or you know, whatever it is that they think of themselves, what I consider to be their truth that I'm witnessing. And so a lot of times I get pushback and that's fine. I think the pushback is a piece of data for me to understand this person has a belief that is so deeply ingrained that they automatically will defend it without thinking or understanding where it has come from or how it has made them the person that they are right now. And so when somebody says, I'm not going to do that, if we're you know, trying to give a task to work on in between sessions, I'll always ask, then what will you do? You came in here, you had an agenda, I gave you some suggestions that I piecemealed together from our session. You came up with them and I just balled them up and get put a nice little bow and said, okay, then do this. And they'll go, no, I don't want to do that. Okay, then what will you do? And there have been times that we have had to break a relationship um, for a client to coach because the person wasn't ready. And I also want to give a lot of acknowledgement to the fact that it's not easy. Again, a lot of people are intimidated by coaching because you have to put in the work. And if someone's not ready, there may be a better coach out there that's like wanting to just support them and where they are right now. And again, you have to find the best relationship, the best match. I will always tell people that I'm the first coach that they've interviewed with, unless they are like, hands down, I never want to speak to another person besides you. Go out and experience a different coach. You know, most coaches give a first session for free, try two or three and see if there is a best fit out of the the people that, you know, you're going to be working with. You're going to be trusting them to be the bumper to your bowling ball. And so if the relationship isn't a good fit, if you don't trust them and they don't trust you, you don't have a relationship. The power of coaching is in the relationship. And so find your person that is going to challenge you, but is also going to love you and support you and want to be there for you. But that does push you. Accountability is a key to successful coaching, giving empowerment to the other person to say, you own these choices and I'm going to make sure that that I give you the tools to be able to do that. So you spend a lot of time engaging with clients, learning about them, understanding what's important to them so they can move forward with their life in a productive way and a meaningful way. But what is the most valuable thing that any of your clients have taught you? I would say that getting a client who comes up with something truly unique for themselves, you know, no, no matter how much a coach really tries to stay out of level one listening, which is listening to themselves, you know, people are ultimately trained to be problem solvers. And so there is some piece to your, you know, brain that says, oh, well, maybe if I lead them a little bit to this thing, I think that's going to be the thing that's going to help them. And if you really shut that part of yourself down, 
if you really truly believe that the other person is going to come up with something that is true to them and will work for them, uniquely for them, you find out that you don't know that much. <laughs> you know, you, we think that we have such a grasp on another person's struggles or the way that they've been brought up or what their value system is, but we can't possibly know a person better than they know themselves. And so where I have often been surprised is at the magnitude and complexity that somebody will come up with something for their own um, betterment, that there's no way I could have come up with that for them. And every time that they come up with something and they go, oh my God, thank you so much for getting me there. And I go, but you really did it on your own. I mean, there is a sense of, you know, obviously a great coach can do that, but I am never not surprised by the beauty and the imagination that will bring a client to their own excellence, that there was nothing I could have done to get them there, no matter how long I had studied or if we had been very close friends. And that surprises me day in and day out. And it's the gift of coaching. It's that you don't have to have the answers. You know, people always go, well, how can you coach lawyers or doctors if you don't know anything about their job? I don't need to know anything about what you do. I need to listen to where there is resonance in your voice and in the particular wording that you use and in your body language to call attention to that what that which I see is important to you. The word imagination really stuck out to me because it's something that we have sort of been conditioned to remove from our lives in a lot of ways as we become adults. We we play less, we imagine less, we often create less unless it's in terms of genuine creative behaviors, unless it's part of our day-to-day job or maybe if we have children. Imagination is something that really helps us flourish no matter what age we are. I mean, I have spent a lot of time trying to understand myself and what really matters and what's important to me. You do have to pay attention to your own personal cues about what is it that this is telling me. I can sit in my therapy session and say exactly what you just said. Thank you for helping me get there because it's true. I just, I wouldn't have gotten there if I was sitting at home by myself doing whatever I'm doing or living my daily life and not actually paying attention to those things that are that are there, but they're not surfacing. And so I think one of the really unique, amazing things about your role as a coach, and frankly, as a, as a friend in my life, is that you are able to say, you can do this, you just need to decide to do it. And if you give yourself the time and the space and the energy, you will naturally come to some sort of resolution. And it might not be immediate, and it might to your point, take some patience. And Lord knows I have very little of that, but I think that there is something for each of us and that's just really transformative. I think it's something that we need to pay more attention to, like that creative inclination to rediscover ourselves and to fail by imagining things even, you know, go the direction that you wouldn't have gone otherwise and maybe you make a colossal mistake, but like at least you you did something else. I often tell people when they say, I just don't want to fail. I say, to me, fail means frequent adventures in learning. And if you ask any person who's successful in a sport, 
you know, in business, in a relationship, it is because they put in the work that they failed so many times that they now know what to do to be the best. And so, you know, in terms of leadership development, in terms of coaching, you know, I say to every person that steps into, you know, my realm, I want us to fail and fail hard. I like that a lot. I when I when I started going to um, my therapist, it actually was because I was struggling with my job and I just felt really stifled. And when I was telling her how I wanted to do something like from my first session, I said, I need to be connecting with people. I need to be feeling that connection. That's what I am meant to do. I know it. I just have no idea how I'm supposed to get there or what it's going to be. But over the course of the last year and a half, I went through, you know, blogging for about a year on and off and then coming to a point where I was like, you know what, this doesn't do it for me. This isn't right. It felt too much like I was catering to what I thought the expectation was than what I actually wanted to be doing. And so to be able to discover that part of yourself through that type of work that you're talking about is just really powerful. And the failure is, as you as you mentioned, kind of a non-negotiable. I mean, we were just talking at the beginning of this call about how I had to check our audio because I went into another session and recorded 20 minutes with it being all messed up. I can't act like this isn't going to be a bunch of foibles. Part of it is just getting comfortable with that idea of failure. And I think you said earlier, you like to make people try on discomfort or try on the uncomfortable. And that was just exactly what it was like for me. I've absolutely failed at things before. I will fail at things again. But I don't want somebody telling me that. (laughs) And and I like your idea of like, you know, frequent adventures in in learning. It's interesting because when you we're talking about the experience and how you were so going to push against it. You know, my coach had immediately went on because that's, that's where you want to get somebody is when they have such a visceral reaction to something and immediately you want to say, you know, when were you told it wasn't okay to fail? Oh, trust me. I've been exploring that. I, I don't know that I have a definitive answer, but I will say that, you know, there is this reality that there's always been pressure on me and some of it has been brought about by the way my parents raised me and the fact that they want us to be high performers. But when I really looked back on it and I said to myself, okay, but they were super encouraging. And if I didn't do well on something, they weren't incredibly negative about it either. So it was hard for me to really understand where it came from because I do think part of it is self-induced. And to that question, it's like, if it's self-induced, I don't actually know where it started without doing either a lot more work or just as somebody who does have ADHD, like we do suffer with a lot of like rejection sensitive dysphoria is uh, what the term is for it, where you just, you feel like you're just constantly failing and it's really hard to not feel that way. Like nothing you do is ever good enough. And so even though I'm evolving in that capacity to understand that these are the things that we go through as we grow, whether that's in therapy or coaching or work or at home, there's something in me that just inherently feels like I could do everything right and I will still think there's something else I should have done differently. And I, I, I will gladly have a conversation with you about that and try to dig deeper into it so I can say, hey, thanks for helping me come to that. <laughs> you know, the word that comes to mind as you're speaking is grace, you know, giving yourself the grace to be able to be human to fail. To be completely honest, I think that, you know, we've had a lot of really intense, painful moments over the course of the past year. And if there's one thing that I think 
can be seen as a little bit of a silver lining to that is that I am a bit more forgiving with myself in how I speak to myself. I I am trying to really reduce that negative self-talk and focus more on what is what is it that I'm grateful for? What is it that I've done well? How can I how can I expand on the things that are positive in my life and allow those to continue to grow? Even the negatives, uh, you know, a failure of some kind can be seen through the lens of something that is allowing you to evolve and grow into the person you want to become. So, you know, there's there's a lot of weight and merit, I think, in how you approach your relationships with clients and the way you've described your communication with them, but also your alignment with who they are as people and trying to not just create a one size fits all approach to the people that you work with. And any professional kind of has a toolkit, right? With your role, I mean, it's probably fairly uncommon for you to reuse, quote unquote, like recycle content because everybody's got their own story. I will agree and also disagree on a meta level. Yeah, you know, everyone's unique and no story is going to be similar. You know, no two doctors come in, they have the same situation. No two lawyers, you know, no two teachers, no two stay-at-home parents. But where I'll disagree is I think in supporting human beings at the very core of their personality and sense of self really we're all very similar we want to feel accepted we want to trust ourselves we want to feel good in the actions that we take and the people that are around us and i think when we speak to people at an emotional level that first sense of feeling that's again why i feel like i could go in and coach you know a senior level executive versus you know a stay-at-home parent or not versus, as well as a stay-at-home parent, because I'm looking at them as unique human beings that all live in an emotional state and need to be connected to that in order to see themselves as they really are, to decide what they want to do with that sense of self, and support them in making choices that are going to bring them whatever it is that they want. And so coming with the approach of everyone is equal in a lot of ways, I'm not intimidated. And again, I think going into a room as a young woman where there could be, you know, 16 chairs of very seasoned, peppered professional men who will have an immediate reaction of what is this, you know, young woman going to do for us? You know, by the time they leave that conference room, I guarantee you they'll look at me in a different way. And that's because there is no fear or shame to directly inquire about someone's emotional health and how that is leading their actions and showing up with who they are at this present time. That's incredible. And I think it's really amazing to to imagine what it's like when those scenarios happen for you. Like, I really wish I could be a fly on the wall and witness that because there is essentially what you're describing, a real-time transformation that somebody's experiencing as a result of the work that you're doing. And that's just such a magnificent opportunity to have to be able to contribute to society in that way. Because one of the things that's really important to call out here is your work is impacting humanity on a much deeper level than a lot of other 
work. We see a lot of unfortunate circumstances, especially professionally, but, you know, just in general with how people treat each other. And I think turning the lens back on some of these people and saying, ask yourself why, is exactly what we need to be able to move forward with more love and compassion and caring for each other. If we don't hold people accountable, which is something you said earlier about just with your clients in general. I literally say this on a daily basis that my biggest frustration with the world today is that the people who skate by are the people who aren't accountable to themselves. If you are not accountable to yourself, then you will get away with anything. You don't have to have somebody else let you slide. If you don't feel like you're doing something that is incorrect or or rude or mean or callous, like you will never change. You need to identify that and you need to own that. And if you don't own that, then you shouldn't expect other people to hold space for you or respect where you're coming from. And it would be a really amazing thing if there could be a mass transformation as a result of having people be more inclined towards coaching and be able to see that within themselves. Even if that's just cracking the door open to give people some perspective on where they need to look inward, like I think that's an amazing amount of progress in and of itself. So I have one last question for you. We're in the midst of arguably one of the most intense, emotionally strenuous, and quite frankly, bizarre times. Life doesn't feel normal. For a lot of us, uh, when we're told to stay home and it's basically an unwelcome invitation for introspection. So with that in mind, what do you see as the most important thing for someone to do if they're feeling alone right now amidst this extensive isolation period? Maybe not so much alone, but perhaps a little hopeless or dejected because it's hard to see the path forward like we were talking about before. You know, the word that I find people reference a lot right now is isolated. And I think that that word has a lot of weight to it because it carries so many different things. It is about loneliness. It is about, you know, um, keeping separation from another person. And I think that's why I wanted to make the articulation earlier that it's not about social distancing. It's about physical distancing. Because when you feel isolated, when you start to get into this I am trapped mentality, you know, our fight or flight goes up and there are mechanisms in our brain that are going to automatically try to protect us, um, you know, way back for when we were still, you know, uh, the first humans on earth. It's the same things that will happen as reactivity in your brain. So in terms of combating isolation, you know, it's about empowering yourself to be vulnerable in reaching out first. You know, normally this person always calls me and I never call them. I'm going to call them this first time. I'm going to write a letter to somebody. I am going to post something on social media that's not, you know, superfluous, but is actually, you know, very deep and true to me, even if it's something very small. But isolation leads to a lot of negative things, you know, I'll, I'll throw the word in depression, but, you know, even worse than than this level of just really having a lot of self-doubt and self-hate. It's important to trust the fact that as a human being, many, many, many people are feeling what you're feeling. And if you're brave enough to be the person that can be vulnerable first and say, I need because I value 
will you? You will find the response fairly overwhelming. Well, frankly, I don't know that I have a lot more to say after that response. I think that was a pretty, pretty spot on answer to that question. And I feel like that is exactly what people need to hear and why it was so important to have this conversation now. And one last thing, in lieu of supporting a single charitable cause, Carlin, why don't you share your request with our listeners? You know, we talked about this earlier, and I don't have a charity. You know, there's things that matter to me. I would want somebody to donate to something that matters to them. And again, that's going back into self-reflection versus doing something because I'm telling you to do it because it matters to me. If you've been touched by this conversation, the thing I want you to leave with is that you have choice. So choose a charity that matters to you. Choose a foundation that needs support, that, that makes you feel good. And the best thing that we can do is hope that even if it's the first thing that somebody does, that's a choice that they just made based on the fact that, you know, we said, hey, we want you to make that choice. We don't want you to be directed. We want you to find something within yourself and, and give it purpose. I'm really excited for people to be able to hear this and learn learn more about you and your process and how you're able to help people. And hopefully, if you're interested in a consultation with Carolyn, you will visit her website, clgcoaching.com, and share your information there so she can be in touch with you. You can also follow Carolyn on Instagram at clgcoaching for more inspirational content. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Carolyn Jovanello for sharing her story and her time. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform like Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And share your email at whothefck.com to receive important podcast updates. Till next time. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast.